A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time and Thou. Guess again, Sheringham said. Maxted clipped on the headphones, carefully settled them over his ears. He concentrated as the disc began to spin, trying to catch some echo of identity. The sound was a rapid metallic rustling, like iron filings splashing through a funnel. It ran for ten seconds, repeated itself a dozen times, then ended abruptly in a string of blips. Well, Sheringham asked, what is it? Max had pulled off his headphones, rubbed one of his ears. He had been listening to the records for hours, and his ears felt bruised and numb. Could be anything. An ice cube melting? Sheringham shook his head, his little beard wagging. Maxted shrugged. A couple of galaxies colliding? No, sound waves don't travel through space. I'll give you a clue. It's one of those proverbial sounds. He seemed to be enjoying the catechism. Maxted lit a cigarette, threw the match onto the laboratory bench. The head melted a tiny pool of wax, froze, and left a shallow black scar. He watched it pleasurably, conscious of sharing him, fidgeting beside him. He pumped his brains for an obscene simile. What about a fly? Time's up, Sheringham cut in. A pin dropping. <laughs> he took the three-inch disc off the player and angled it into its sleeve. In actual fall, that is, not impact. We used a 50-foot shaft and eight microphones. I thought you'd get that one. He reached for the last record, a 12-inch LP, but Maxted stood up before he got it to the turntable. Through the French windows, he could see the patio, a table, glasses, and decanter gleaming in the darkness. Sharing him in his infantile games suddenly irritated him. He felt impatient with himself for tolerating the man so long. Let's get some air, he said brusquely, shouldering past one of the amplifier rigs. My ears feel like gongs. By all means, Sheringham agreed promptly. He placed the record carefully on the turntable and switched off the player. I want to save this one until later, anyway. They went out into the warm evening air. Sheringham turned on the Japanese lanterns, and they stretched back in the wicker chairs under the open sky. I hope you weren't too bored, Sheringham said as he handled the decanter. Microsonics is a fascinating hobby, but I'm afraid I may have let it become an obsession. Maxted grunted noncommittally. Some of the records are interesting, he admitted. They have a sort of crazy novelty value, like blown-up photographs of moths' faces and razor blades. Despite what you claim, though, I can't believe microsonics will ever become a scientific tool. It's just an elaborate laboratory toy. Sheringham shook his head. You're completely wrong, of course. Remember the Cell Division series I played, first of all? Amplified 100,000 times? Animal Cell Division sounds like a lot of girders and steel sheets being ripped apart. How did you put it? A, a car smash in slow motion. On the other hand, Plant Cell Division is an electronic poem, all soft chords and bubbling tones. Now, there you have a perfect illustration of how microsonics can reveal the distinction between animal and plant kingdoms. Seems a damned roundabout way of doing it, Maxted commented, helping himself to soda. I mean, you might as well calculate the speed of your car from the apparent motion of the stars. I mean, possible, but it's easier to look at the speedometer. Sheringham nodded, watching Maxted closely across the table. His interest in the conversation appeared to have exhausted itself, and the two men sat silently with their glasses. 
Strangely, the hostility between them of so many years standing now became less veiled. The contrast of personality, manner, and physique more pronounced. Maxted, a tall, fleshy man with a coarse, handsome face, lounged back almost horizontally in his chair, thinking about Susan Sheringham. She was at the Turnbull's party, and but for the fact that it was no longer discreet of him to be seen at the Turnbull's for the all-too-familiar reason, he would have passed the evening with her rather than with her grotesque little husband. He surveyed Sheringham with as much detachment as he could muster, wondering whether this prim, unattractive man with his pedantry and inbred academic humor had any redeeming qualities whatever. None, certainly, at a casual glance, though it required some courage and pride to have invited him round that evening. His motives, however, would be typically eccentric. The pretext, Maxted reflected, had been slight enough. Sheringham, a professor of biochemistry at the university, maintained a lavish home laboratory. Maxted, a run-down athlete with a bad degree, acted as torpedo man for a company manufacturing electron microscopes. A visit, Sheringham had suggested over the phone, might be to the profit of both. Of course, nothing of this had in fact been mentioned, but nor as yet had he referred to Susan, the real subject of the evening's charade. Maxted speculated upon the possible routes Sheringham might take towards the inevitable confrontation scene, not for him the nervous circular pacing, the well-thumbed photostat, or the thug at the shoulder. Well, there was a vicious adolescent streak running through Sheringham. Maxted broke out of his reverie abruptly. The air in the patio had become suddenly cooler, almost as if a powerful refrigerating unit had been switched on. A rash of goose flesh raced up his thighs and down the back of his neck, and he reached forward and finished what was left of his whiskey. Cold out here, he commented. Sheringham glanced at his watch. Is it? he said. There was a hint of indecision in his voice, and for a moment he seemed to be waiting for a signal. Then he pulled himself together and with an odd half-smile said, Time for the last record. What do you mean? Maxted asked. Don't move, Sheringham said. He stood up. I'll put it on. He pointed to a loudspeaker screwed to the wall above Maxted's head, grinned, and ducked out. Shivering uncomfortably, Maxted peered up into the silent evening sky, hoping that the vertical current of cold air that had sliced down into the patio would soon dissipate itself. A low noise crackled from the speaker multiplied by a circle of other speakers, which he noticed for the first time had been slung among the trellis work around the patio. Shaking his head sadly at Sheringham's antics, he decided to help himself to more whiskey. As he stretched across the table, he swayed and rolled back uncontrollably into his chair. His stomach seemed to be full of mercury, ice cold and enormously heavy. He pushed himself forward again, trying to reach the glass, and knocked it across the table. His brain began to fade and he leaned his elbows helplessly on the glass edge of the table and felt his head fall onto his wrists. When he looked up again, Sheringham was standing in front of him, smiling sympathetically. Not too good, eh? he said. Breathing with difficulty, Maxted managed to lean back. He tried to speak to Sheringham, but he could no longer remember any words. His heart switchbacked, and he grimaced at the pain. Don't worry, Sheringham assured him. The fibrillation is only a side effect, disconcerting perhaps, but it will soon pass. He strolled leisurely around the patio, scrutinizing Maxted from several angles. Evidently satisfied, he sat down on the table. He picked up the siphon and swirled the contents about. Chromium cyanate, 
inhibits the coenzyme system controlling the body's fluid balances, floods hydroxyl ions into the bloodstream. In brief, you drown, really drown, that is, not merely suffocate as you would if you were immersed in an external bath. However, I mustn't distract you. He inclined his head at the speakers. Being fed into the patio was a curiously muffled, spongy noise like elastic waves lapping in a latex sea. The rhythms were huge and ungainly, overlaid the deep, leaden wheezing of a gigantic bellows. Barely audible at first, the sounds rose until they filled the patio and shut out the few traffic noises along the highway. Fantastic, isn't it? Sheringham said. Twirling the siphon by its neck, he stepped over Maxted's legs and adjusted the tone control under one of the speaker boxes. He looked blithe and spruce, almost ten years younger. These are thirty-second repeats, four hundred microsomes, and amplification one thousand. <laughs> I admit I've edited the track a little, but it's still remarkable how repulsive a beautiful sound can become. You'll never guess what this was. Maxted stirred sluggishly. The lake of mercury in his stomach was as cold and bottomless as an oceanic trench, and his arms and legs had become enormous, like the bloated appendages of a drowned giant. He could just see Sheringham bobbing about in front of him and hear the slow beating of the sea in the distance. Nearer now, it pounded with a dull, insistent rhythm, the great waves ballooning and bursting like bubbles in a lava sea. I'll tell you, Maxted, it took me a year to get that recording, Sheringham was saying. He straddled Maxted, gesturing with the siphon. A year. Do you know how ugly a year can be? For a moment, he paused, then tore himself from the memory. Last Saturday, just after midnight, you and Susan were lying back in this same chair. You know, Maxted, there are audio probes everywhere here, slim as pencils with a six-inch focus. I had four in that headrest alone, he added as a footnote. The wind is your own breathing, fairly heavy at the time, if I remember. Your interlocked pulses produced the thunder effect. Maxted drifted in a wash of sound. Some while later, Sheringham's face filled his eyes, beard wagging, mouth working wildly. Maxted! You've only two more guesses, so for God's sake, concentrate! He shouted irritably, his voice almost lost among the thunder rolling from the sea. Come on, man, what is it? Maxted, he bellowed. He leapt for the nearest loudspeaker and drove up the volume. The sound boomed out of the patio, reverberating into the night. Maxted had almost gone now, his fading identity a small, featureless island nearly eroded by the waves beating across it. Sheringham knelt down and shouted into his ear, Maxted! Can you hear the sea? Do you know where you're drowning? A succession of gigantic, flaccid waves, each more lumbering and enveloping than the last, rode down upon them. In a kiss, Sheringham screamed. A kiss! The island slipped and slid away into the molten shelf of the sea.
Hello, that was track 12 by J.G. Ballard. With me in the studio today are my fellow host, Mark Sinker and Richard Thomas. We're not in the habit of giving credentials and qualifications after people's names, but resonance listeners are probably going to know who you are. Um, what did you guys make of that story? I was amused by it. And uh, they, they were certainly... Um, yeah, I, I thought it was quite interesting, actually, in terms of uh, how it sort of plugs into um, electroacoustic music history. And then it raised a few, a few interesting sort of... It generated a few interesting kind of reflections uh, for me uh, uh, uh-huh. about just what was going on uh, sort of scientifically and medically and so on culturally in well, that period. Which well, is, the, well, this was written in – I, I, th- I think of J.G. Ballard as somebody who writes stories, I don't know, in the 70s or something. He wrote Crash. He wrote uh, – so this is from 1958. Yeah. So very early, right? That's I, I think it must be one of his earliest stories. I, I don't think he was publishing before 1958, off the top of my head anyway. Um, and uh, it was published in New Worlds when Ted Carnell was editor. Um, so although Ballard is largely associated with um, the, the new wave in science fiction, which began in the mid-60s, mm-hmm. the, same, the same magazine, New Worlds, where, as edited by Michael Moorcock, who was uh, Ted Carnell's successor. But what, well, the reason I picked this story was partly because... There's a little bit of a gulf between his later sensibility and this very early story, but I think there's also elements of it which are actually things that he carried on and developed in other ways um, much well, more intensely and is much more associated with. So, uh, I, I'm, yeah, but as Richard says, it, it really has a, a feeling of the science uh, and exploration in art of the 50s. Well, Mark, I, w- I was going to ask you if this was atypical of the stories because it on one level it's it seems like that um it's a sort of it's a revenge story it's um yes it's quite it's kind of like a, a rewrite of the cask of amontillado in a way um you know there's sort of it's something very dank about it and it's purely a, yeah it's a revenge where the the revenge is kind of being explained through the whole thing um that uh, guy a has done something bad to guy b yeah. and guy b is using his uh the fascination of his collection, not in this case of wine, but of recordings, to uh, to um, well kill the other guy. <laughs> but, then, but then, as you say, there's this all this stuff which uh, in it about technology and science and the sort of exploration ethic uh, or something that um, that is sort of very much of the time. Now, Richard, what else was happening in 1958 around music around? Uh, science. Well, I think I, I'm. You know, I hesitate to sort of comment very accurately. Um, I can't, in fact, about what was going on scientifically. But this, this show is not about accuracy. <laughs> okay, but it does seem to be. Um, you know, an interest in the cosmos. Sputnik was launched and then landed, and they launched another one. I think the Americans launched another satellite and so on. Um, and they also, so you're going out into the cosmos, and there also seems to be an obsession with microcosmos. I imagine there was a real development in pharmaceutical cultures at the time, though I can't vouch for that um uh, there's other things going on in terms of music the bbc radiophonic workshop was launched in this country um and it ties in, in 1958 in 58 right. yeah yes and also um i suppose the the first sort of the, the grm pierre schaefer uh, head of the group research de musicales in paris um i mean had been working in a kind of music concrete style since about 1948 but I think it was starting to really come into, um, you know, starting to find legs at this period. Uh, uh, 
music concrete was starting to find legs mm, in this period. Mm, mm, mm. Now, let, let's get into that a little bit. You, you, uh, you mentioned that there's something called um, acousmatic listening mm, techniques. Mm, mm. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, uh, I think un- the acousmatic was something adopted by uh, uh, Schaeffer's successor, Francois Bale. But um, essentially, it comes from uh, Pythagoras, and it's the concept of the acousma, that you, you deliver a lecture um, behind a screen or, and so on. So you, you get rid of any kind of uh, visual signifiers or a- any kind of uh, uh, the physical presence of the, of the speakers mm-hmm. is, is removed. So, the, I don't know, I guess the information becomes more abstract and you're less hooked on that guy's nose and beard and so on, and you listen to fact. And so, it's guess, supposed to, so it's supposed to sort of erase all uh, prejudices well, about, exactly. We're about doing the a- information and just bring it straight into your brain somehow. Yeah, what we're doing right now is, is, um, is an acousmatic thing, and it's always, often always peculiar when you see radio presenters. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We build up a persona based upon our, our um, owl understanding of them, and it often doesn't really ever fit with how they really are. <laughs> right. You know? But, yes, this, this thing is almost like a listening game. It's like a, um, uh, an acousmatic kind of listening game. What Schaefer did, which is related to the acousmatic, he, he came up with this idea of a cloche coupe or cut bell. So you'd sound a bell and um, you record it onto a piece of magnetic tape. Mm-hmm. But what you do is you remove the starting transient. So that bit where the, the, the hammer within the bell strikes the side of the bell, you, re- you remove that and you're just left with the overtones. So you remove that with some piece of uh, editing equipment or something. So you have a piece of tape, you yeah. record it, ding, you know. So you take out the tip. You see, you just so you just got that. Mm. You take a blade and you cut off that section yes. at the beginning. So you've just got this overtone, right. which is free for you to manipulate. And um, you know, you it perhaps doesn't uh, have as many connotations. Uh, you abstract it; it becomes abstract, and it doesn't have as many connotations as uh-huh. say the use of a bell. It's redolent of uh, religiosity and entrance and exit and all sorts of things. Yeah. So, so, so you could so you could think to yourself the sound of someone striking a bell as a signifier. The signified, the thing that it signifies is the bell. So what happens when you cut off that beginning is you make what it signifies more vague and open to interpretation. Yes, and more malleable in terms of uh, sort of a composer's hands, you know. Mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. So, th- so was, this a, a prime, was this one of the big techniques that music concretists it's would use? It's the kind of key technique, I think. It, it was the technique that they, they developed it over time because initially the, con- the music concrete um, research, they were basically using uh, phonograph discs, mm-hmm. which are actually rather hard to snip because <laughs> when you cut a little bit out of it, playing it becomes less satisfactory. Uh, but, they, you know, they had next to no money. It was after the war. They, he, Pierre Schaeffer had this brilliant idea, but what he had was loads of records. Mm-hmm. And although magnetic tape already existed, it hadn't really been developed as a, um, as a technology. It, it was largely developed, in fact, in Nazi Germany, the sort of modern version of it. And even then... It was it was quite a difficult thing to use mm-hmm. because they used a um, a metal an all metal tape which again was quite hard to edit. You could record on it beautifully, but it was quite hard to snip, and it took quite a lot of fiddling around mm-hmm. uh, in America, especially to to work out a technology which was easy to edit. And it was largely used in radio for not not for um, the exploration of the frontiers of sound, but just for practical things to. You know, cut the cough out in so, so that you could present a program, but then obviously broadcast it 
later. Mm-hmm. It, it's always said that it was um, because Bing Crosby liked to play golf in the afternoon when his program was going out. So he liked to, so he would record the program in the, e- mm-hmm. the evening before, and then it, and so he he paid for the technology to be developed. And and this technology is a uh, technology of tape, where it's not an actual piece of metal. It's a it's a malleable piece of plastic that's got metal particles yeah, exactly, embedded in it. Exactly, so it can be. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I just want to interrupt you for a second. Do all our listeners are wondering if we're going to talk about the story again? We are. <laughs> this is a long detour. We are going to get back to it. Well, the story um, is, is equal parts. It's about fidelity and infidelity. So I suppose we're doing the fidelity aspect. Of it. <laughs> well I, uh, done there. Yeah. So magnetic tape in has been uh, developed by, by the mid fifties. Um, the, the, there were a lot of avant-garde composers who were jumping mm-hmm. at tape it was becoming i mean it was still quite expensive but mm-hmm. it it was available and its usability was um you know manifest it, it was quite easy to use and, and you had people i mean stock hasn't essentially sent himself mad i've always argued by working for 18 months on one tape piece which is about 20 minutes long in the end and has you know 10 million Splices in it, which he'd just done himself after midnight down in a bunker, and then played it back, and people went sort of, <laughs> and so, and <laughs> he was always now, insane after that. <laughs> now, see, little Louis and Masters at Work in New York did, you know, the same thing with tape, except they had beats, and everybody went crazy <laughs> for it. No, but I'm um, sorry, excuse me, um, R- Richard. In 1952, uh, you said that uh, the f- there was a festival of Britain. And 51, 51. Sorry, 51. Yeah, there's two expos here that we have to mention. Really, um, one only relates partially to it. In 51, you had the festival of Britain. Um, I suppose you know. Great, uh, great celebration of, uh, of Britain's uh, uh, developing modernity, I suppose. And um, one of the things that uh, came out of that and was recently exhibited at the Wellcome Trust was um, the, the exhibition at the Wellcome Trust that uh, I had is um, From Atoms to Patterns. Mm-hmm. And it looked at X-ray crystallography, mm-hmm. which um, Dr. Helen McGaw, who was based at Cambridge, she was appointed as sort of head of this x-ray crystallography research group or whatever it was. And uh, they started to study the atomic structure of various... Um, elements, haemoglobin, you name it, and um, use these these cell patterns as a a basis for fabric designs and ceramic designs and so on. That's partially related. But then something that's, you know, much more um, pertinent to this story is in 1958 you had, um, I don't know, another World Fair kind of thing in Mm -hmm. Brussels, and uh, Le Corbusier was commissioned to design a pavilion for the Philips Corporation, who were you know, largely uh, behind, um, responsible for the manufacture of uh, weapons, of course, and, um, you know, electronic media apparatus. Magnetic um, tape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Veres com- was also commissioned. They wanted to work with a composer. Edgar Veres. Edgar Veres, yes. And he made a piece called elect- uh, Poem Electronique at the GRM. Um, Poem Electronique. Yes, yes. And that's, again, a piece of music concrete, bits of animal sounds, a bit of an organ here and there and so on. It's a fairly crude collage in a way it's enjoyable Mm -hmm. it was an audiovisual piece there was some filmic and photographic um uh, accompaniment to it which which existed in this sort of uh parabolic structure that um no it wasn't parabolic at all i think it was hyperbolic but it's a it's a yeah i mean the 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 building's long been knocked down and the uh the aspects that weren't part of the tape the the visual part of the audio visual mm-hmm. are kind of unreconstructable i think if we even mm. know what the pictures were we don't know how exactly they were meant to be seen mm. but um then used to say uh, assisting le corbusier was uh, uh the composer and you know former architect uh, well 
He was still an architect at this point. Yanis uh, Senekis. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you've got a piece of music from him that you yeah, want to play. Yeah, it's a piece called Concrete PH, which okay. is is a similar sort of atomized uh, thing. Some of the the stuff discussed in this this uh, story, track twelve. Um, he worked with uh, burning coals and so on, and uh, it's a fizzing, spitting. Uh, uh, kinetic, effervescent sort of uh, piece of music. So some of the sounds we're about to hear uh, are not instruments as we think of them. There's but not one musical instrument. They're all concrete sounds. Okay. Richard, you, you said that reminded you of the pin drop in the mm, story. Mm. Um, where is it? Well, you know, it's actually, despite it being sort of hot coals, it's definitely got a slight metallic uh, quality to it. But I think it's, I, I really, I just thought, oh, it's a coincidence. It's from 1958. It seems to be sort of preoccupied with some sort of uh, microscopic kind of engagement with audio and the complexities of, you know, burning coals or, you know, I mean, you know, an Alka-Seltzer is an incredibly complicated thing if you drop some in some water to listen to. Um, you know, it seemed, it seemed to really to that, certainly. Mark, is there something about uh, modernity and the avant-garde that is obsessed with documenting things and archiving I, them? I think I, I don't think it's just modernity and the avant-garde. I think it's the 20th century. Pathology is documentation. And 
I think that avant-gardists were people who um, uh, did a kind of uh, cultural cloche coupe on the documentation, which is to take it out of its context. But, you know, newspapers had photographs in, but the early avant-gardists cut the photos out of the newspapers and then stuck them all together in a different order so that you could um, look at the the effect of the of the documented object itself cut from its context and juxtaposed with other things and the things this caused to sort of jump out of your mind was was part of the point of the art and uh, Ballard definitely sees himself as a sort of second generation surrealist he he was always from the beginning unusually interested in the surrealists when they weren't weren't particularly fashionable you know he he uh, curated exhibitions and wrote essays on them and things from the um, early 60s and uh, he this this story in some ways it's quite atypical as we as we've said but but in other ways I think it's it very much fits into um, the uh, trajectory of his his um, own obsessions which is um, an, a sort of intensity of effect uh, derived from uh, our information gathering habit but looking at it from uh, a, a different angle to its its normal context so that you know later he became uh, very caught up in photography to do with uh, surgery car crashes the the things which are associated with him in the late 60s um, pictures uh, of things that are hard to take pictures of in a but way. in but in fact he wasn't taking the pictures yeah. he was gathering the pictures from um, journals and things like that, uh-huh. which which were fi- not finding it hard at all to take those right, pictures. Right. <laughs> um, but they were specialists. Uh, it was specialist material for specialist research, mm-hmm. and he was taking it just into another context, which mm-hmm. is, um, I guess, pulp writing or you know semi pulp writing. I mean, he's not really a pulp writer at all. He's actually quite a um, a literary writer in some ways. He, he, again, he fits more in the surrealist tradition of dream writing i think what are his weaknesses as a writer well his weaknesses are uh, this this story has characters in it It has two characters and a sort of agon between them that's really quite unusual he he doesn't um he's not terribly interested in people i don't think Uh, it struck me when i was thinking about okay you know let's just sort of think from from that actually you if you listed his weaknesses they're not terribly dissimilar to asimov's that we Mm-hmm. poking fun at mm-hmm. the series mm-hmm. although he couldn't be less like him as a writer which is that pe- the people are, are sort of um, jigsawed into his interest in something scientific or technological he tends to they, it basically it, the agent, the actor in his stories yeah. is the technology itself it's yeah. the setting but it's also the motor and the people are just having stuff done to them and pretty much just standing there letting it happen. They're very passive. You know, I felt like when I, when I was reading this story, I felt like um, – tell me what you think. Were, were the, was the drug the, – the, was the guy getting drugs? What would the story have been like if that didn't happen, if he didn't get drugs? Why was that necessary for this story? I think you could have written a very science fiction-y story but a, quite an easily uh, undermined science fiction story by saying that actually it was the sound itself that was killing him, mm. that we didn't mm. know enough about the sort of microscopy, microscopics of sound at this era, and so that if you 
to you know yeah. if you yeah, organized yeah. it in a clever enough way or a subtle enough way that the sound itself would somehow cause his sinuses attack your to, microstructures and, and, all, and he would flood his own cell structure or whatever he says and drown as a result and but i think the problem was that they actually knew enough about um sound to know that you know he wasn't prepared to go there in a sort of speculative way but i think one thing that the drugs uh that the drug does uh literarily is it allows that last bit of the story to be very um strangely written and very um mm. poetic and very odd the way mm. he describes these waves crashing in mm. on him if i guess if he wasn't drugged he sort of wouldn't have had as much license to be that um mm. It's interesting also that the drug, I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it, it's essentially poisoning him. You know, this isn't a pleasure exercise. But um, yeah. I thought it was interesting, the flaccidity. Yeah. You know, it was a flaccid, passive mm. experience. I thought that was kind of interesting. I just wanted to go back to this thing Mark was saying and, um, you know, talking about how essentially, you know, human beings are kind of uh, a bit peripheral sometimes, you know, to, mm. to the writing. And I thought, um, do you think he was aware or at all interested in sort of uh, the Nouveau Roman and people like Alan Rob Grier, who, again, you know, foregrounded objects and people like Marguerite Duras and so on? And I guess they're kind of post-structuralist writers, aren't they? Well, I think both of them um, began to make their... I mean, they're part of the new wave of French fiction, in a sense, so mm. they're probably making their name at the end of the 50s. So he may well have been reading stuff about them. I don't know, you know, if he reads French or if that mm. would be necessary for... And uh, the other aspect of this that I think it's always worth pointing out in such... in in a sort of 
heightened era of particular kinds of exploration, actually a lot of people emerge who have similar kinds of sensibility. Because, because, well, it's not even so much that. It's if, if... Ballard is right that the technology itself is the agent in our society. Mm. It's not just going to be impacting mm. on him. He might be super sensitive to it, but he's not the only person who's sensitive to it. So, as you say, there were there was a period of of these French. Then um, I can't remember what it's called. The Nouvelle Romain, is that right? Yeah, yeah. 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 And um, well, Nouveau Romain. Nouveau yeah. Romain. Yeah. Okay. Mm. <laughs> um, and uh, I, yes, I do think it is. It is part of this era. It's a sort of pre-60s um, uh, fascination with, um, on one side, the sort of scientific side, that this technology opens up these whole sort of um, uh, galactic scapes of the inner world mm-hmm. so that you're looking at the atom as if it were galaxies. Well, it's, it's and, fascinating at mm-hmm. one point in the, sto- in the story uh, when, the, when the, um, the, the villain of the, of the piece asks uh, our... our uh, lecherous hero so so what is it what is it and it's something very 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 small mm. but he's he makes a guess and he says i don't know galaxies colliding mm. and there's i i love this about this story that you have this confusion between very 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 big and very 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 small i think af- just after he says galaxies colliding he mentions throwing a match away and watching it burn a tiny scar mm. in the in, in so, so you get this mm. this huge this big confusion between Near and far, big and small. Yeah, I think I, I, you know, I, I sort of mentioned this at the beginning. I think there's a definite kind of uh, juxtaposition between macrocosmos and microcosmos, and I think people are going out into space. Literally, you say, well, there's, I think Gagarin went to space in '61, mm. as I mentioned earlier. Sputnik was up there and descending back to Earth. Simultaneously, I'm sure that um, you know the pharmaceutical culture was really, really being developed. I'm sure we suddenly had a boom. And when was the contraceptive pill introduced? Couldn't um, have been much late, you know, 65? Yeah, I think it's the mid-60s. Mm. But not far away. No. And and this kind of uh, control over your um, ability to reproduce and so on is kind of interesting. It seems to be a lot of, I don't know, I mean, this seems a really, really important year for someone like J.G. Ballard, you know. It seems to be a real um, kind of pivotal moment in terms of... Uh, I mean, I think yeah. what's interesting is that his sensibility in terms of this um, fascination with documentation on the whole, moves away from sound. This is not something I, I would particularly associate with the rest of his work. He's much more caught up in the visual. Mm-hmm. Again, as as I say, I think he thinks of himself as a correctly as a surrealist, and uh, and um, surreal surrealism is actually very hostile to to music and not terribly interested in sound. Mm. Um, and uh, is it is that is that so? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they wanted to end music. Yeah, Bre- Breton didn't like, didn't have, it had no truck for music. Actually. He said the only the only music from now on should be um, the sound of a random gunshot gunshot into a passing crowd. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's very strange because since, since music is so associated with the kind of the unconscious or the preconscious or the the unrational, and the surrealists were also very interested in these I, things. I too. think, but I think the problem is that it, in a sense, it's what I think is interesting about this story is it makes to stop the, you in the, the, the poetics that we were talking about, in a way it makes it too easy sound. I mean, this is what is so rich about it, mm-hmm. and it's what you know we value it for in pop music, in the symphony, in the avant-garde you know, textural word of, world of sound. But I think if you have a visual or a writerly sensibility, it, 
it encroaches a bit on the thing you want to do. And while it's absolutely true that a lot of his work is poetic, it's to do with the translation of the poetics of the visual and of aspects of it which are overlooked. And I don't think it's true to say that the poetic dimension of, of music, for example, is overlooked. If anything, it's over-celebrated. Whereas if you're talking about the poetics of um, a deserted uh, cement structure, as the terminal beach is largely about a, a, um, a slightly mad man wandering about, wandering around in a um, a structure which had been to do with nuclear testing on a on a um, an atoll, mm. and it, it's just it has a series of little chapters. But basically, he's just walking around looking at it and thinking nothing much happens. And I think he, I think Ballard is is um, very determined to uh, examine this uh, visual aspect of our um, culture, including very very ordinary things, especially towards the seventies. Um, in the seventies, that's the thing he he becomes. Um, caught up in doing the, his he, he wrote the books which really made him famous in the early 60s are a series of essentially disaster novels but the, although there's a sort of cataclysm in them they're not disaster novels in the sense that we would normally because actually the story of the people who are undergoing this disaster it's not like the poseidon adventure it's not like the adventures of these people trying to save themselves or cope mm-hmm. it's it's about the uh um, the striking visual change of a drowned world, a world which is completely flooded, or a crystal world, a world where areas of the planet, for some reason, have suddenly just turned into these strange crystalline structures, just growing out of animals and out of plants and out of people. And he spends quite a long time it, it's sort of mo- describing He talks a lot more about what it looks like than what the social effects are or the effects on, or yeah, how the, uh, the survivors are going to heroically cope. That's really not his interest at all.
One of the things about this story, which was a challenge for me when I was recording it and, and putting it together, was that he describes these sounds that he's hearing in great detail, right? Um, it's, in fact, that really feels like almost the whole point for him writing the story. So he gets to spend like a page mm. and a half describing these the bizarre amplified sound of a kiss. And it was so unbelievably tempting to try to duplicate this sound using – whatever effects I had to hand, uh, recording other things, uh, mixing them, tweaking them to create this sound that he's describing in the book. And I, but I didn't do it. I just left it bare because it, it, I mean, it was, it was a curious thing because I felt like it would be taking some of the power away from the story to actually include the positivity of that sound there in the story rather than leave a negative space for our brains to conjure this almost unimaginable sound that he's describing. I feel like once you put it in there, it's sort of, well, it's, it's no, not as I, impressive. I think anymore. you're very wise. I mean, I, I almost, you know, I used to be quite involved with music and sound production, you know, making records and things like this. And partially that was unsatisfactory for me because I'd like to read in and write in and sort of journalistic activities and so on. But then I also started writing down ideas. And I thought they were stronger when they were written down because there was more space for you to imagine, mm. really. It, it also strikes me that that given you know what he was doing in the late fifties, which was you know he had a young family and he was just beginning to be a writer and whatever, I think it's really highly unlikely that he'd actually heard any of the music that we've been discussing. Hmm. I don't think he would have been tri- going over Zanakis to Brussels. Or... No, I mean, he would have read about it because I think he read about those kind of things. And because he was interested in surrealism, he was reading mm-hmm. about things that were going on in France, which mm-hmm. a lot of this was. Mm-hmm. But actually getting access to this music, that was really, really unusual because very little of it was emerging on record until the mid-60s. Well, you just download it, right? <laughs> exactly. Our access to it and our comfort with the idea that if you hear about something happening all the way across the world, then you yourself can experience a, a sort of broadcast version of it very, very soon. Not happening there. I, I know what that's like. I mean, I first, you know, I, I study kind of modernist music in the 20th century and so on, and I'd read this thing about this guy. Pierre Schaefer, and he does some weird device there, and a pipe, you know, you think, this is interesting. And I, I couldn't get anything, you know, this is about 1989 or whatever. Mm. Re- so I only had a literary engagement with it until about 1998, for about mm-hmm. 10 years of my life. I just had to fantasise it, and it was almost kind of disappointing when I heard it. <laughs> you know. Well, I, I, you know, that's what I think this, this is partly about. I mean, Ballard is a writer, basically. He's not... A sound designer or a... Or a publicist for uh, an art movement that that finished, you know, 70 years ago. I mean, he he is fascinated by it and he keeps returning to it. But his job is actually to keep your eyes on the page with the sentences he's he's stringing together. And 
So if he's using everything that he's using is combines to do that in the end, that's what he has particular things he wants to talk about, but he wants you to be involved in his writing and not, in fact, to be sort of being passed on mm. to the... Uh, yeah, one of the things that I think is it's, it's quite unusual that someone who would, I think, insist that he was influenced by this other group of people actually goes on to do something with their own art which does a similar thing because mm -hmm. what you usually get is this kind of you know basically people being um uh promoters mm -hmm. for the thing that they like when when they do that when they're tagging onto something what they're doing is pointing at the other thing like they, 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 they'll have their sexy hero be a surrealist and then they go do something and that's he, not what he does here but I, I mean he is a surrealist yeah and that is what he does and he he works in this dream space of writing, the thing we've been describing, the poetics of it. Um, and in one of the interviews that I was reading over the weekend, he, he was talking, he says, the thing that fascinated him about the surrealist painters was, he said, on one hand, they were making themselves totally open to this dream material, um, which was a new uh, territory of sort of artistic endeavour in some ways. But he said he liked the fact that somehow... You know, when we dream, we're, we're asleep. But when they were dreaming, they were awake. And so that their, um, their rational minds and their consciousness were engaging with the dreaming. But what seems to happen when you become a fan of surrealism, or indeed a fan of Ballard, is that you jump in with your awakeness so much that all you're doing is letting him dream for you. But actually, it's not that common. The thing that he would want you to do is to start dreaming yourself and being awake. But these things are really intention. And most people can only do one. I mean, we can all we all do dream. Um, but our waking and our dreaming are set against each other and cancel each other out. And his project is to combine the two. His uh, his villain in this in this piece seems like he's he's uh, almost in a in a trance himself he's thinking and and dreaming at the same time he's he's very rationally and methodically laying this trap for um Maxted but it the trap doesn't make an enormous amount of sense actually i mean what's he doing he's well well he's a kind of uber nerd villain isn't he because yeah. what we know about him is his marriage has broken down because he spends his whole time with mm. his recording projects yeah. And then he's really, really angry that this this kind of um, uh, former athlete dope has come in and romanced his wife and whatever. But, I mean, the villain is controlled by... He's um, possessed by his own technology. He spends his all, time, all his time doing it. So his wife starts to look elsewhere. Yeah. And then in order to revenge himself, the technology takes over and creates the revenge. Yeah, so, well, what else is he going to do, right? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But I think it is. I mean, that is the the secret of the story is that the 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 villain is is really a function of the technology. He's actually he's unable to be as uh, an ordinary human being should be in an ordinary marriage because the technology has so penetrated his life that all aspects of it, including the revenge, are totally determined by it. Now, I don't know about you guys, uh, Richard, uh, Mark, but uh, I've 
definitely felt like Max Deads on occasion, and I'm sure I've made other people feel like Max Deads on occasion. Um, this this story to me is, in one way, in in one sense, the ultimate version of that horrible moment that you recognize happening when you're being forced to sit there and listen mm, to somebody mm. else's favorite records. Mm. All the, and I, you know, when I was when I was a teenager, I think I did this to you know my parents. To everybody I knew, like no, 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 no. I've just got one more, one more. No, no, no. Sit there, you know. And it, in, but in this case, I mean, it literally kills him. Yes, no, I, I experience this almost on a daily. My girlfriend experiences this <laughs> yeah. almost on a daily basis. Actually, I must say, but uh, not so much with records, just with um, ephemeral thoughts. But um, yeah, it's funny actually. I noticed in, in uh, paragraph second page, uh, Max Ted grunted noncommittally. Some of the records are interesting. He admitted they have a sort of crazy novelty value, like blown up photographs of moths' faces and razor blades. It's a very sort of stoned conversation, actually, already at that point, isn't it? Mm. Who would say that in a Just, conversation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is in Britain, 1958. Despite what you claim, though, I, I can't believe microsonics will ever become a scientific tool. It's just an elaborate laboratory toy. And is that kind of sort of slightly, I don't know, there's something really pointless, really, about messing around recording a, a load of hot coals. As you mentioned, Stockhausen's kind of uh, experience is completely pointless, but it seems like... Uh, you know, it's Ballard is wrestling with himself in this paragraph, yeah. and perhaps he's also making a reference to himself writing. You know, I, uh -huh. I have no idea, but um, it, it struck me that uh, it's kind of, you know, on one hand he's fascinated by this, and it seems quite the case with such elaborate descriptions of sound, and the other, the other side of it is that, of course, he, he feels it's a completely futile mm -hmm. uh, pursuit. Mm -hmm. I, I think he goes, it, it's interesting, because this is, this is quite early on, and I think he is still wrestling with the the two with as if humanity has two sides, which is the the sort of normal person with a body and with a sex life, and then this kind of uh, invaded cyborgy bearded man who has got caught up in his own obsession and collection and technology and whatever, and has been somehow stripped away from his own humanity and become this monster, but you know, 10 or 12 years later, um, there aren't two different kinds of people in his story anymore. The people mm -hmm. are the normal people. Mm -hmm. Ballard has decided or recognised or believes it's too late. They're all gone. Mm -hmm. And everyone is essentially penetrated by different kinds of of recording technology. As I say, <laughs> he's, he's more interested in visual things later on he doesn't really return to the sound aspect of it particularly and i don't think that was i mean it was very fashionable at the time and obviously caught his interest for this story but it's not something he specifically pursued although clearly other people other people who knew his work and and have um wanted to explore it in other ways have have followed up on that but yes he, he you know we're all cyborgs after the late 60s in ballard stories i think Thank you, Richard Thomas and Mark Sinker. I'm Elisha Sessions. This has been A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time, and Thou.
Kummer, denke ich, Doppelpunkt. Der Junge macht mir Kummer, ich möchte Punkt, Punkt, Punkt. Dass er mir sagt, Gänsefüßchen, bitte komm mit zu mir. Ja, wenn denn, Fragezeichen, heute um Punkt 4. Oh, oh, Ausrufezeichen, es wäre so schön. Ausruf, Ausrufezeichen, Klammer auf, Klammer zu. Oh, oh, Ausrufezeichen, es wäre so schön. Ich in deinen Armen, Gänsefüßchen und Punkt. Heute um Punkt 4, Semikolon, seh ich dich. Du wirst mich abholen, dann machen wir Bindestrich. Du sagst zu mir, Gänsefüßchen, bitte komm mit zu mir. Wozu denn? Fragezeichen, es liegt allein an dir. Oh, oh, Ausrufezeichen, es wäre so schön. Ausruf, Ausrufezeichen, Klammer auf, Klammer zu. Oh, oh, Ausrufezeichen, es wäre so schön. Ich in deinen Armen, Gänsefüßchen und Ich in deinen Arm. 